0: Hello, welcome everybody. Um, As you can see, I am not Charlie Beckett. Um, He sends his best wishes, uh, and uh, you'll be hearing from him and from me over the coming weeks in this class. We are delighted uh, to have for you this evening somebody who the Guardian said was one of the 100 most influential people in the business sector... I think last year and this year as well. Um, He is the chief executive of Ipsos Mori, which you will all have heard of as one of the uh, biggest market reach market research companies in the world. Is it the third, the biggest, third largest, the third largest market research company in the world? Uh, He uh, is the boss of uh, 1,200 people at their offices here in central London and he has worked in market research since 1987. So, uh, Ben, thank you very much. You will have a chance to,
1: to pose some questions to Ben at the, the end is of the, the talk. Awesome. Hello. Right. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, we're going to have death by PowerPoint. There are too many slides. Um, they serve very little useful purpose uh, except to remind... Can you hear me at the back? How are we for audiability? A bit bad. I don't know. If I shout, I don't. Oh, okay, I don't know how it works. All right, I'll try shouting. It's good for me. Um, okay. Uh, good. Um, and um, email me. And if you like Twitter, which you should do, then you can tweet along and um, uh, put down anything you like. Forbes magazine says that companies that have chief executives who tweet outperform those that don't. Um, so uh, you can see what you make of this. Uh, I'm also going to try and work out how the slides go backwards and forwards, I guess uh, that probably does that. And what I want to talk about today, I'll talk a little bit about um, just my organisation and what what we do, thanks Holly, um, and then I want to talk a bit about just why nobody believes anybody anymore, um, uh, and obviously why the media are evil, uh, and then perhaps why market researchers are evil and why we can't predict anything, and then at the end we'll take questions and uh, work, over, work out what we're doing. So. Um, the first thing, I don't know if you can actually, oh, I see, okay, so this is great, um, your, your laptop cuts my slides off or does something strange, but never mind, the we'll just, we'll just, London is a unique place for, in, for many reasons, um, you've all chosen to study here, but actually in terms of my industry, it's one of the things that Britain is still a world, uh, a centre of excellence at, and there are probably more great market researchers in London and the surrounding area than in any other individual city on Earth. That's partly because Britain is a very geographically concentrated place, whereas, um, you know, Germany has Berlin, but the media center is in Hamburg, uh, or America has New York, Washington and Los Angeles here, everything is here. But, so London is, London is great for market research and many of the global experts and companies uh, started out in Britain um, after the Second World War. We're in three buildings here. Um, one uh, in Borough Road, which is near Elephant and Castle, in an old um, diary factory. One next to that ship, which some of you uh, may recognise, on the Thames. And one in a horrible building somewhere eight miles away in Harrow, where you don't want to go unless you're very bad. Um, uh, we have about um, 1,200 people there. And we, you know, we do lots of different things. Um, we're best known, and most survey research companies are best known for their work in the area of politics. So we will predict who's going to win the next general election, or we will ask people what they think about uh, the government, etc. But that's only about 0.01% of our work. Uh, It gets about 90% of all of the media coverage, because it's the only thing that the media are really interested in writing about, which is a sort of uh, fighting between political parties. But much of our work is much more interesting than that. And actually, we publish as much as we can on our website. Uh, We have a sort of vaguely... Uh, altruistic idea about trying to show people what other people are thinking. So, but it is, it is it does give people a very strange idea about us. And actually most of the 1,200 people um, we have are working for you know, these sorts of large global companies but also huge numbers of charities. One of our biggest clients in Britain is the Department of Health. Uh, the National Health Service in Britain employs 1.3 million people. Um, so it's perhaps not surprising they might want to find out what the population thinks about their services. But we work for large numbers of consumer goods companies. Um, those are the people who are interested in finding out what people think around the world. And I won't go into details on sort of minutiae, but my industry, like so many industries and like the newspaper industry, is at a, is at a moment of sort of huge change. This is basically what I know how to do. Um, and that's what I've been trained to do, which is to find a small number of people maybe a 1,000 out of a population of a million or so, or 10 million or 50 million, um, ask them carefully designed questions, and then hopefully, having chosen the right people and asked the right questions, I can then tell you what the great British public think. Um, what's interesting, though, is that my industry is rapidly changing. Uh, and that is, 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 you know, my industry... When I, when I started work in 1987, we had two computers in a com- in the company, and they were guarded by very fierce women. No, I wasn't allowed to touch them. Um, I used to write my reports out on pieces of paper, and I'd give them to them, and then they'd come back again, and you sort of correct them and give them back to them again. Uh, and after about... And I used to do charts, actually, some of them like the ones I'm going to show, you, by, by drawing around cups and then sort of bits of sticky paper, putting on, you know, percentages and things. So, and indeed, in fact, one of the things that, you know... Just in the 1990s, one thing that changed, it used to take me all afternoon in the 1980s to calculate um, uh, uh, something called a line of best fit, which some of you will be, will be very excited about on a chart. Um, that I can now do, in, you know, and then in the early 1990s I could do that in one second. We got email in, the, you know, in about 1991, 1992. We got the internet in about 1993, 1994. I don't think we were allowed to look at it for a few years until porn filters were uh, developed. And then we were allowed to look at the internet. But, the, but what is happening in my industry at the moment, as in so many industries, is that we're at this next phase of the web, and that is fundamentally changing. My, my industry has grown constantly since its invention, sort of in the 1930s, with, without a let-off until about, ni- until about 2009, when the crash, uh, combined with all of these things, which we aren't going to have time to talk about now, means that actually a lot of what we do is rapidly changing. Um, and often now, when we want to know what people are doing, we don't need to ask any questions at all. So our industry has gone from sort of knocking on doors and sending out questionnaires. Uh, in the 60s, we got into the idea of ringing people up on the telephone, uh, and that became sort of widespread in the 1970s. And that went on for a long time. Uh, in the ni- late 1990s, the beginning of the century, we started on Internet panels, so, you know, which is very, very commonly used these days, uh, we're just about to announce in a few days um, signing up 28 million people in Britain to uh, let us interview them on their mobile phones. You get a pound off your phone every time you take a survey. So if you're sitting on the bus or something, you can take a survey, your bill goes down. But we're now just sort of finding people all over the web. Uh, we don't. We just look at what people are saying on the web. We have neuroscience. We can tell if you're perspiring when you look at an advert. Does this mean you're crazy for it or not? Um, and, you know, things like, you know, when I was... You know, starting out, we can tell you who's going to do well on the X Factor by looking at what people are saying in different blogs, um, on different social media, and this is a fundamental shift in my industry. It's all about sort of passive measurement, and the one of the challenges I think, and I think this applies whether you're going to work in, you know, whether you're going to work in journalism, you're going to work in politics. It's quite interesting, actually. It's these, you know, are we these sorts of professions? I don't know how many of you want to be a lawyer or an accountant or something like that, or an architect, or are we these sorts of professions? Um, And the key difference... Obviously, there are lots of professional skills involved in all these professions. But I think the key thing that is uh, absolutely vital to be clear about is general incompetence. What happens if you're incompetent in your profession? And there are very different things that happen. Um, It's different, right? So, you know, if you're bad at flying a plane, it will become very apparent fairly quickly. Um, In our industry, if you're bad seventy you know, percent of the light whiskers, nothing bad happens. And only very rarely, um, you know, once every few years do we publicly it's a bit and in fact we don't even have to do this. A lot of research companies don't don't do political polling, some because they don't like the humiliation. Um, but uh, you know, once in a while we will be tested. This was the perfectly accurate survey on the night of the general election as the first result, as the as the ballot stations or ballot boxes were shut. Um, where we predicted that the Liberal Democrats wouldn't do quite as well as we had believed Um, and uh, Ian Dale of LBC said that he would run naked down Whitehall if this survey was correct Uh, it was correct but he has yet to run naked down Whitehall so you can ring in LBC on Saturday mornings and ask him when he's going to do it um, but the general challenge we face, and I think 2008 has talk, just reminded us of this. And this, in my industry, I think, is a, is a particular one. Is that, generally anybody who says they can predict anything is likely to be very wrong. Um, you know, I, there are so many examples, but I love this one. You know, uh, all thought of thinking, of talking pictures will have been abandoned. It will never be possible to synchronize the sound with the picture. Uh, they did it two years later. That was somebody, a big cheese in Hollywood in the 1920s. And um, Tom Peters, when I look at business, uh, a lot of our work is about predicting which products and services will prosper and thrive, which ones consumers will chase off the shelves. Um, Tom Peters is a, a, an acquaintance of mine on Twitter. He wrote one of the best-selling business books in the 1980s called In Search of Excellence. Within, And he in this, he, he talks about the most successful companies and how wonderful and innovative they are. Within three years of the publication of that book, about a third of them are either bankrupt or in severe trouble. Now, this tells us a number of things. One is that maybe Tom Peters is a charlatan. Just a spin doctor. You know, it's bullshit. Or the other answer is, of course, that actually shit happens. And I'm quite keen on this theory. Um, (laughs) Most expert predictions turn out to be rubbish. This is uh, taken from Tim Harford's book, Adapt. Uh, He writes for the the FT on Saturdays. And Tim's very good. Um, And this is looking at what experts said about oil prices in 1981, 1984, 1987, 1993. And the white line is what actually happened. And of course, most experts, it turns out, are only about 5% more accurate than the general public. So, if we go out onto Kingsway and do polls of the general public about what's going to happen to the economy next year, uh, George Osborne um, or anybody else is only likely, or your Chancellor in your country is only likely to be 5% more accurate than people on Kingsway. Um, But what we can say, then, is that my company, the people who made the software that I'm using now, the people who made the Apple devices that many of you have in your pockets, are all likely not to exist in 100 years' time. Uh, If you look at the 100 largest companies in the world in in 1912, only one currently exists. And if you look at... It's quite interesting to look at the role of chance in all of this. This is um, the fossil record, looking at fossils and when they cease to exist as you dig in the ground. And you can see how often it appears that different species became extinct over this period. So here's the percentage becoming extinct each million years. Quite a lot go within three million years. Some hang around as long as 24 million years. If we now look at the last hundred years and those hundred largest companies in the world and look at the frequency at which they went bankrupt, uh, that shows one thing about lies, damn lies, and statistics. You can probably make them prove anything. But I think... It's just this point that chance happens. And I think we're, we're starting to become more aware of that. But a lot of our, you know, much of our work is still nevertheless trying to measure uh, imperfect things. Now, one issue that you might be debating, if you're interested in politics, of course, is this idea that our societies uh, have a fundamental problem of authority. We know that the people in charge are, you know, impo- pretty useless at running an economy. Uh, we know that most of them, many of them, are corrupt. Um, we know that they're subject to uh, ruthless scrutiny. And therefore, partly as a result of that, of course, nobody trusts anybody anymore. Any, um, is that reasonable? Disagree? Agree? Don't care? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. This is um, a a study that we do every once in a while, looking at who trusts, um, which professions we trust to tell the truth. Um, And you can see that top of the chart are doctors, professors, as Damien has just pointed out, 74% trust him. Uh, bishops and the priests, 68%. 63% trust the police. In America, that figure is 40%. Um, TV newsreaders, is interesting—an interesting sort of journalist. 62% trust them to tell the truth. Uh, and why is that? Because they're journalists, right? And there are some other journalists down here. Well, of course, this is because you can see them talking to you. So obviously, if they—you therefore believe that you would be able to understand if they were lying when you see them reading the news from an auto cue. Um, about half of us trust each other pollsters, about 39% trust me. I'm one of the professions, one of the few professions actually, where trust is in decline, uh, partly because there are more and more pollsters who don't all agree with each other. Uh, There's bankers, then we have um, journalists and, you know, politicians generally. Now, you know, this is pretty terrible. The people who are responsible for telling us about these people, um, you know, basically nobody, you know, the people who generate wealth, nobody trusts any of these people at all, um, except the professionals. And you could look at that and say, well, my prejudices are confirmed. But the evidence is actually that nothing much uh, is changing. This is, if if I can make it go on. No. Okay, oh, exciting. Okay, this is how much people trust these different um, professions over the last 30 years. And actually, although politicians sometimes do stupid things, as we saw with the British expenses scandal in 2009, where politicians became for the first time pretty much less trusted than journalists, which took a lot of effort uh, in the House of Commons, but they did it in the end. But overall, you cannot really say doctors, teachers, you know, not, we're not really seeing a collapse in trust um, in individual professions. Uh, and I think this, this whole idea that nobody trusts anybody anymore can be overstated. Um, I think this, however, might be serious. This is the proportion of people in Britain who say that they almost never trust a government to put the interests of the country first. So while trust in, in each other, professions, professors, hasn't changed much, this is the uh, proportion of people who say they almost never would trust a government to do the right thing. And that is a, a significant uh, shift over the last um, you know, 20 or 30 years. It hasn't, but it hasn't started recently, It's been a long-term change. And I think that reflects a number of demographic changes. Um, One evidence we have, of course, is that people don't belong or support any particular political party. You can see that in 1983, around half of us would describe themselves as supporters of a particular political party. That figure falling down to around one in three um, over this period. And what's interesting about it is when you dig into the data... And you look at different age groups. So these people at the top are the people who were born before the 1939 to 1945 World War, or depending on where you, where you come from it. Your war may have started earlier than ours or later. Um, but anyway, uh, basically, they're, you know, they're, they're quite likely to say all the way through this period, every time they're interviewed, that they see, see themselves as supporters of political parties. You then have the baby boomers born after the Second World War, up until the early 1960s, they're a bit less likely. Generation X, quite, I guess they must have been adult enough to be interviewed in about 1986, so the 70s and onwards. And then Generation Y, um, born after sort of 1980, less likely still. So it's, a, it's not that people of all, everybody is going off politics, it's just that successive generations are less and less loyal to individual political parties. And I think that's a challenge. So we have, a, and part of that is some of these things. Um, You know, scandals, the decline of the print media, which makes them sort of much more abrasive. We have the internet. And, you know, but, again, we always need... And I think one thing that, if you are looking at public opinion, is trying to look... We now have 50 years or more of data about public opinion in many, many countries. And a key thing, then, is to understand, when I see a result, is it new, or is it just something that's always like that? So this is one of my favourite polls. Do you think British politicians are merely out for themselves... For their party or to do the best for the country. This survey took place uh, as we were invading northern France in a coalition with the Americans to fight the Nazis. And even then, only 36% of people in Britain would think that our politicians were acting in the national interest. Um, The rest of them think they're only interested in themselves. So the idea that our politicians are currently, you know, pretty wicked um, is uh, perhaps overstated. Um, And generally, you know, do you trust the the government to do what's right? Um, Well, in India and China, it's an internet survey, so maybe the people on the internet in China are different to people working in villages somewhere. Uh, But nevertheless, they're very enthusiastic. But right across the West, France, UK, Germany, America, we all hate our governments. It's normal. (laughs) accepting China, obviously the government's always right. Um, But, you know, and the latest figures are a bit more worrying. Um, If you remember that same question, we tried the same question, now you find 4% in Britain who say that the uh, MPs, members of Parliament in Britain, are acting in the interests of the country. Uh, 55% think they're acting in their own interests. So this general scepticism is a real challenge. But with politics, again, we must always try and understand what matters um, and how people Make judgments about different people. This is, um, uh, for those of you who study British politics, may be interesting. Um, when we say ask people, you know, what you want? What do you want from your politicians? Um, um, why do you trust them? Well, they lie. They promise something to get elected, and then they don't do it. They work for their own ends. They just say what you want to hear. You know, they're terrible people. I hope you're, ge- I hope you're getting some politicians, Damien, to come and speak here. Good. Um, and in fact, you know, we, are, we, did the, we asked this question. Um, this is a, a parochial British scandal, but there was a man called Damien McBride who worked for um, Gordon Brown, and he developed an intimate sort of smearing campaign to be used on the Internet about the Conservatives. Uh, but what was interesting is when we polled people... 72% said, well, all of them are exactly the same. All of them would do this. I mean, you know, Damien McBride is a nasty piece of work, a uh, colloquial British expression. Uh, but nevertheless, we're quite prepared to believe that everybody um, is like him. That's just what politicians do. But when we look at what, you know, who really gets it and who is successful in politics, the data, it isn't, it isn't always about honesty. This, I mean, maybe any, any suggestions as to who in British politics of all of the people who have led different political parties might be regarded as the most honest? Somebody British will have to answer this one as it goes back a bit of time. Who would be the most honest politician we've ever had in Britain in the last 30 years? Thatcher. Thatcher? Mrs. Thatcher, okay. Very good. Um, any other suggestions? John Major, John Major. very good indeed. He is Honest John. Um, right, now let's look at who is the most useless, absolutely rubbish uh, politician we've ever had since 1979? The most cat-handed, what? Tony, Bear. Tony Bear. Um No, uh, <laughs> uh, and this is a very common pattern. Well, how about this? Who has been the most wicked, dishonest, treacherous, Lying politician that we've had in British politics since 1979? Any others? Thatcher. Okay, and um, who, of course, has been the most popular politician of the last uh, 30 or 40 years? Um, And this is a, a key point, that actually, although we talk about wanting honesty, when you crunch the data, what you find is that the person who wins is never the person who is automatically seen as most honest. They are, in fact, the person who is seen as a capable leader and good in a crisis. On those two characteristics at the moment, David Cameron still, despite his government's endless problems, still uh, is doing better than Ed Miliband. And so we will see uh, what happens. Um, And if you're really interested, and you can go to our website, there are several reports about this, Um, the things that actually correlate with trusting um, public institutions, uh, if you trust the health service or the police, it turns out to be these positive things, um, these sorts of factors. So many of the things that we would expect, but when you look at politics, it's different. Um, And it is about, ultimately, a sort of combination of skill and cunning that people seem to respect, as well as a certain stature, rather than just simple honesty, per se. But it it really, I think one of the things that that is difficult um, in our contemporary society is that many, many people now find it hard to know what the facts are or what the truth is. Um, We've done, and this, this report is free to download on our website, we tried to look at why is it that in Britain, as in so many Western societies, crime is falling. Um, If you look at the British Crime Survey, crime is now overall at about the lowest level since that survey began. The same pattern in America, it's the same pattern in Europe. And yet, in all of our countries, people are obsessed about low-level disorder, antisocial behavior, and often will refuse to believe the government statistics. Um, And so what do you find most worrying? This is about this period. Before the crash, this is what we were obsessed about. Then we became worried about losing our jobs. But look at the British, you know. More worried than the Swedes, the Italians, the Americans, where some people are allowed to get automatic weapons, even if they're not mentally sound. Uh, But nevertheless, um, much more worried than all of these other places. Uh, And this is what has actually happened on crime in this last period. Um, In red, the amount of money the government spends on crime. In green, the level of crime. And in blue, how confident we are in the government's ability to do anything about crime. So here's the money. Uh, Under the previous government, they increased spending on crime by about 33%. Here is the level of crime. So this should be a government that's doing a brilliant job. 40,000 extra policemen, um, an extra 20,000 people in jail, uh, and crime falling. This is how confident we were in the government to do anything about crime. Um, uh, And what's going on? And I think we do need to be more... Uh, and particularly um, people who study this uh, for a living like you need to be more sort of aware of some of the different factors. And I think generally there are a huge number of issues that we can start and opinion polling can help us look at to understand why people won't believe the truth um, or indeed why some people are able to lie very convincingly uh, about facts. Uh, The first is, um, you know, our friends in the media, I mean, the, the media cannot tell us that black is white. That is not possible. What they can do is find an itchy spot on our body and scratch it uh, and make us irritable. So immigration, for example, generally if you look at people who read newspapers, their views are very, very similar in terms of their levels of anxiety about things, problems facing the country um, as people who never look at newspapers. Very, very similar, except on one issue, immigration. If you read newspapers in Britain, you will be more concerned about immigration if you don't read them. And, and people, successive editors of the Daily Express have noticed that if they put stories about terrible immigrants um, on their front pages, they will sell more newspapers. And, you know, absolutely can show that. Crime. I haven't got time to show you the data. People in London now demonstrably feel safer in their own homes, in the, in the neighbourhoods they live in in London, than they did do ten years ago. Look at the annual London survey on the GLA website. However, if you ask Londoners as a whole about how crime is going in the city, it's out of control. Uh, you can't sleep safe at night. There are, you know, why is that? There is direct correlation between what the Evening Standard and some of the local papers uh, write about crime and how worried people are about crime, not in their own neighbourhood, but in the, in the city as a whole. And the internet, of course, depending on what issue you're looking at, tends to sharpen and polarise debate. We go and find people who are a bit like us and talk to them, and they tell us, yes, it's true, climate change is a lie. Oh, good, all my friends, everybody on the internet thinks climate change is a lie, so I believe them. And of course, the media believe in balanced coverage, don't they? You must give the views of one side equal weight to those of the other. So if 5% of scientists disagree with the 95% of scientists over climate change, nevertheless, we will give the 5% of scientists an equal amount of coverage. Look at the uh, great global warming scandal on Channel 4. It's very interesting and exciting. And it means that fewer and fewer people in Britain are now worried about climate change. They're less and less likely to believe it's definitely happening. Um, Political effects. Generally, governments are rubbish. They start off popular and then become unpopular. This is a cast iron rule. uh, one of our more famous politicians, Enoch Powell, uh, you can look him up sometime if you haven't come across him, um, he says that all political careers end in failure, uh, but it is also true that all governments end in failure. They, uh, so during their time in office, they become less and less popular and less and less likely to be uh, credited with doing anything right, um, no matter what is actually happening, because we have a very uneasy relationship with politicians. Um, people working... The government, one of the key issues can be that, and and this is an absolute case in point in Britain, uh, the last government spent a fortune on, uh, in fact, virtually doubled spending on the health service, uh, our hospitals, etc. It paid people working in the health service millions and millions more, in better pensions and better pay. Because of the way it organised those services and the way those people felt they were managed, a lot of the time, they would go around um, actually criticising the service. So in Britain, it is true that if you meet a policeman or if you meet somebody working in the health service, you will actually feel worse about crime. You will feel worse about the health service than if you never talked to them. Um, and so that can be um, a huge challenge. Uh, direct communications. What you say matters. People do notice uh, direct communications, but public services often not very effective. Um, People are generally very bad at estimating anything. Um, In Britain, people believe that about 40% of teenagers get pregnant. Uh, The actual figure is about, I can't remember, it's either 0.01 or 0.001. But if you ask the general public how many people in Britain, teenagers get pregnant in Britain, they'll say 40%. If you ask people in Britain how many people in Britain on this island were not born here, their guess is about 30% of the people on the island were not born on the island. The actual figure is about 14%. Um, so it's a huge issue. We also have an issue that people will often say, well, how does it feel in Hackney? Well, actually, I know that Hackney's pretty safe these days. I feel okay. But I know everywhere else it's absolutely terrible. So we're, we have real problems with that. Uh, Cohort effects, it depends who you are, we'll skip over that one. And then some other, other huge factors that if you're trying to measure how people feel about things, these will make a big difference. So ethnic fractionalization just means mixtures of people. If you're running a hospital and you want to know how happy people are with it, depending on where the hospital is, even if the hospital is identical, even if all hospitals in England were identical, they would get different scores from the people using them depending on where they were. Um, uh, you can see this in London. Uh, you know, If you want to be treated here, do not go to Newham General. You will not be happy. Um, and one of the factors turns out that very, very mixed places turn out to be harder to serve and to please than communities that are very homogenous. So if you take, you know, take the, one of the best hospitals in Britain is based in Newcastle. If I move that and I lift it up into the air, Newcastle is a very white, very deprived part of England. Some of the happiest people in England, the fattest The poorest and most racist. Um, I don't know if anybody's here from Newcastle. It's a wonderful place to go out. It is. It really is. Have a great nightlife. But if I take that hospital there and drop it into, say, Brent or Hackney, its scores and ratings from the public will immediately get worse. So we need to be clear about that. And we need to be clear about how people pick up on one piece of evidence and selectively give that far more prominence when they make mental judgments about the world. One of the reasons why people believe that crime is out of control in Britain, or indeed in London, is because of signal crimes. Uh, And this is, for example, in London, one year, about three years ago, 32 teenagers were stabbed to death half of those teenagers actually had very, very serious criminal records, although you won't have read about that in the papers. And what that does, though, the coverage of those crimes means that the 7.5 million people living in London, who all report in their own neighbourhood of London feeling safer than ever, believe that crime is completely out of control. And in fact, in this island of around 60, 65 million people, the highest ever level of concern about crime was related to the murder of one 11-year-old. It was a tragedy, It was a tragedy, but it was one 11-year-old. But it's the media's coverage of that event and what that people then take, the meaning people take from that, to tell them about the state of our society. So we need to be aware of all of these things and the fact that actually people's expectations are changing. And this is one of the reasons why it becomes harder and harder to tell the truth. And then finally, I just wanted to sort of talk about my own little word, because actually one of the things that we're trying to do all the time is to test for these things. So I'll show you some examples. Here are two surveys about moving a news programme. In Britain, historically, we have often had on um, the independent TV channel, the news read at 10 o'clock at night. Uh, And as you can see, we've got uh, two survey results here, showing whether or not people suggest that we should move that uh, news channel's broadcast at 10 o'clock. So whether you like, do you like the result on the left or the result on the right? Well, they both say completely different things. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is that um, half of the sample got asked this question, there has been a proposal that ITV should change its lineup of programs. One part of this would be to move the news from 10 o'clock. In general, how strongly would you support or oppose moving the news from 10 o'clock to allow ITV to show the programs? Very neutral question. The other half of the sample get asked the same question, but then we read something else out as well. If there were no evening news at 10 o'clock, ITV could show a wider range of programs, films, dramas, documentary, sports, comedy. And two-hour feature films, not suitable to be shown earlier in the evening, could be shown about a break for the news. It's also a factually correct statement. And depending on which of those you do, you get a massive difference. One of the things that we're trying to do, then, is not to deliberately show you only this answer, or only this answer. It just shows how easy it is to change people's responses, particularly where they do not have well-defined views. And you need to be very, very careful about who commissioned the poll, um, what was the question wording, although most reputable pollsters will try and ask neutral and balanced questions. But that's a key issue. This is an interesting one on development. Um, This is from uh, a place outside Manchester. It's a national park. Uh, It's around the town of Buxton, Glossop, and the Hope Valley, a very beautiful part of England. And you can see the people here. Are you satisfied with the way the council is controlling building and land development? No, don't like that. Um, do you agree that more needs to be done to preserve the historic nature of our town centers? Glossop and Buxton, these are nice places. Yes, we must preserve it. Remember, one of the few things that unites everybody on this island is our heritage. That's what we think is the best thing about Britain, when you ask British people, is <coughs> heritage. Um, I would support more houses being built if it meant better shops and facilities. The shopping is not good there. No, I don't want more shops. I don't want more houses. This area needs more housing and jobs, an area of high youth unemployment, even before the crash. Uh, 31% against, 29% agree. The rest haven't got an opinion. And then we took that same statement and half the sample, randomly chosen, we added four words to the statement. So young people stay. Suddenly, 62% agreed. And this is precisely, of course, what we do for politicians, other sorts of people who are trying to make an argument, is find those parts of the argument that, in this case, have the most impact. And the reason it has an impact is, ah, yes, my, you know, my kids can't afford to buy a house around here. Actually, there aren't any young people. But you know, just what we're trying to do when we do this, of course, is be transparent about the impact. Um, of of language, of words, and so it does really, really matter. So I'll shut up. I think words matter. I think facts are more contested than ever. Uh, Try and be trusting but also try and check the truth. Good luck to everybody. Thank you.
0: If I can start off with some some questions before I invite questions from everybody else. Um, There are a couple of points in your talk when you, uh, you speak about direct correlation between uh, media uh, exposure uh, and various outcomes. Yeah. So you were speaking about in a macro sense the collapse of trust thesis yeah. and you said that this is correlated with scandals, uh, certain forms of media representations for example yeah. and <clears throat> later you were, you were speaking about uh, various other forms of, of, of direct link between media exposure and for example um, you know, the, you, I think the example you gave was the evening standard writing about crime yeah. and perceptions about crime now in media and communications studies, and this is a media department, there's a lot of reticence yeah. about drawing inferences yeah. about media effects. Yeah. So can you tell me just the methodological background For to what sure. you do?
1: So what we've done, I mean, I think there's a number of things. I don't think you've never um, proved this, but what we do do is look at day-by-day day coverage. Um, so some of the best work that we've done has been actually in the area of the health service, where you're looking at daily samples of of texture analysis, this is actually pre-internet or certainly pre-easy access to news media on the internet. Daily analysis of press coverage, linking that to daily interviews with people about which newspapers they looked at and didn't look at and what they actually recall <coughs> noticing in those newspapers, and then separate questions about their attitudes. So if you take the National Health Service, for example, what I can prove to you. Is that whenever there is an anniversary of the National Health Service in Britain, it was founded in 1948. The weekend, first of all, I can show you that the weekend of the anniversary, I can show you the press coverage, which is collected on a like-for-like basis on a daily basis over the course of a year. Strangely, at the the weekend of the anniversary, the press coverage goes up, so we can prove that they wrote more about uh, the NHS. I can then show you that that weekend, that weekend, not a general, not a month later or another, but that precise weekend, awareness peaks. Of the anniversary, it's a shame my my computer isn't connected, and I'll show mm-hmm. the. And then, of course, we can show it decaying afterwards as they go on and move on to other things. And then, separate questions we asked that weekend on this example, and I'll come on to the immigration one. Were how happy were we with the NHS? The weekend, where the, the press coverage of the, 60th, uh, the 50th anniversary of the NHS was at its peak, satisfaction with the NHS went up by 16 percentage points. It's flat throughout the year. The anniversary coverage goes up because, of course, on our hypothesis, and I cannot, this is the bit I cannot prove, is that people in Britain love the NHS. In surveys, they say it's the, after heritage, it's the thing they're most proud of. You saw the opening ceremony of the Olympics. How many countries would have people in hospital uniforms parading around? Uh, and that's because Mr Boyle has his finger on the pulse. And so what you're doing is r- reminding people about the feel-good aspects of that brand, about the things they feel proud of. Uh, With immigration, as I say, the analysis we did there was to look uh, more generally uh, at people's, the general attitudes of issues which we ask every month, um, and we also ask which newspapers you read every month, what are you worried about? And as I say, when you control for everything else, people who don't read newspapers are actually just as likely to say, I'm worried about Iraq. Or the economy, but consistently, for whatever reason, people who read newspapers are more worried about immigration. Now, it may be that if you're worried about immigration, you like reading newspapers that tell you it's a big problem, or it could be that if you don't, you know, if the newspaper is reminding you all the time that it's a big problem. I leave that to you to decide. We know okay. that most people in Britain are. So, does that, I don't know if that helps uh, that,
0: That's of- immensely helpful. People might want to follow up. Just one yeah. final um, question (coughs) from me if I can get my voice back (coughs) Um, the last part of your talk was really fascinating when you showed how changing the wording of a question changes the outcome now (coughs) you mentioned some of your clients they range from political parties to big brands to the government Um, (coughs) and you kind of alluded to the fact that you work with your clients to come up with the questions. Well, no, how, I, know, I know that there's a code of practice yeah, 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 yeah. Which, you, okay. which you subscribe to. Okay, sure. Can you just talk us through briefly how the process okay. works?
1: Sure. Okay. Well, actually, we have an ethics committee uh, <clears throat> internally where, um, and I actually get fired by quite a few clients for not asking the questions in the way that they want, although generally they don't like it when we then publicly go out and say that... Um, you know, X just tried to ask some questions, and we, we have got a fairly good history of litigation in this area. So, we, we believe that we should be able to do opinion polling for anybody. We would have probably worked for Joseph Goebbels, Goebbels if he was around. We believe that it's a science, you know, this is, a, this is a combination of art and science, and we should be able to ask neutral questions using our professional skills in the same way that a doctor or a lawyer would work for somebody will generally defend the murderer and somebody will generally cure a murderer in a hospital.
0: Is that true of every polling company? Uh,
1: I couldn't possibly comment. Um, But generally, what there is is transparency in our industry. So if you're reputable, um, and I think this is the point, you do have to publish the results fairly quickly, including all of the questions that you asked, how the survey was conducted. I mean, with all of these things, um, uh, it's a challenge. I think what you're alluding to, though, is that we will not... I think if you really wanted to pick it, pick it apart it is partly about not asking about things that people don 't want to ask questions about, um, and you know occasionally actually I sometimes force there was an, actually an interesting one on something recently where I forced a question into the survey that they didn 't want me to ask, and I just asked it anyway but because we are trying to protect our reputation for independence i mean there 's no point in hiring me to do something if i 'm just producing any old answer you like, why not just go and make it up use use survey monkey or do it yourself you know so if you want my uh, professional, if I'm going to put my professional reputation on the line, such as it is, I have to be confident that the questions asked were unbiased. I think there's a what I was showing you, the, but the one angle of what I was showing you at the end is that in political communications, and I understand there may be a few people here interested in that, of course what you're trying to do is help politicians make the case. I will not ask biased questions on their behalf for the publication because that would just be stupid and counterproductive. But what I will do is say that, for example, if you're going to talk about the need to build more homes in Britain, it is probably best not to talk about them being built on greenfield sites. Uh, and you may wish to find some other form of words. So or it is better not to talk about X. Um, one of the things that pu- public, uh, government ministers, I think, in Britain, and in many countries love doing, is talking about reform, uh, or particularly public services reform, as though this is something that's going to make the electorate horny you know, and excited. Uh, well actually you would be better off talking about you know, what are the benefits that this is going to deliver um, rather than the process of reform per se so language matters always and you can use research to improve the language you use most, you know, most, if you see most of the, uh, you know, the uh, presidential debates will have language in them that has been focus grouped okay. uh, sometimes it's counterproductive
0: I'm sure we have people waiting to uh, ask questions make comments
1: <coughs> we'll the pub, yeah? okay.
0: respond um, one here and then one here uh, thank you for that talk uh, really interesting stuff I have
1: kind of uh, a particular question
0: can everybody hear this at the back yeah okay
1: uh, I'm, I'm curious kind of about the internal workings of the company so you have 1200 okay. employees in London uh-huh. uh, besides the obvious thing which would be I guess you know Uh, posing questions what do they do? Um, Well they're working with clients to understand what their problems are, what the issues are that they're trying to understand Um, but remember I'm I'm showing you mostly quantitative data here, I've got a whole team of people who just do observation uh, and that might involve just hanging out with people and filming them Um, I've got a whole team of people tonight there will be people all over Britain sitting just having dinner with people and seeing what they're talking about. Um, So there's a whole range. So some of them are doing data collection, some of them are doing analysis, some of them are doing presentations like today. Um, You know, there'll be a whole combination, checking data. I mean, there's, you know, there's three or 400 people involved in sort of processing data, um, analysing it, looking at models, etc. I mean, yeah, there's there's a massive range of different things. But the classic job is, you know, understand what the client's trying to find out, Find an appropriate mechanism that you might use to find that information, but it, it can involve 10, 20 people, and some of these projects are large. You know, you might be collecting. Uh, there's one project we do that we, where we send questionnaires to the patients of every doctor in England, and um, we have to buy so much paper because you know a lot of older people in Britain are still not online. We have to buy paper futures because if the price of paper doubles, I'm in deep trouble. Um, so there's a, just there's a, this is it's, yeah, like anything in life, it's very you know it can be quite specialised. <clears throat> um, you mentioned all the drivers of perception of, of lies and, yeah. uh, of course, media. Yeah. Was first. yeah. And um,
0: yeah. Uh, uh, what I was wondering, how do we actually cope with the uh, conflict of interest that could be among, uh, in, in media corporations? Like, we might actually uh, want, want to perpetrate the existence of those lies, those yeah. misperceptions mm-hmm. And uh, so, how do we, like,
1: should uh, I don't know the government or uh, the civil society or media professionals themselves? Well, this is where I think I don't know. You can you you can debate this amongst yourselves. We have the Leveson inquiry, which is obviously arguing that print media need to be more regulated in Britain. Um, I don't have any. You know, I think there is a there's this tension, as it's mooted, between freedom of speech and you know somebody deciding. What is a fact? I, I, I would observe uh, that if you look at um, opinion, public opinion across Europe, Britain is unique in having some of the lowest levels of trust in its print media, but some of the highest levels of trust in its broadcast media. Uh, and Then you have to ask yourselves which is more regulated.
0: <coughs> okay. One here, and then one here. Okay, uh, I'm particularly interested.
1: things do you try to find out on the internet and how do you do it? So it's, well, it's virtually everything. I mean, it's all of, you know, it's a a lot of web analytics and web sentiment. So I have people whose sole job is to use um, algorithms to trawl and scrape the web uh, for content. So that's one thing where you can, I can show you, you know, what people are saying about Boris Johnson uh, and then relating that to opinion. That chart I showed you from the X Factor, that is using, now a lot of these tools are very commonly available. Although the main issue there is garbage in, garbage out. We do one piece of work for a major um, food manufacturer where they want to see what are people talking about cheese. Um, now, I learned from doing this that there are all sorts of strange sexual uses of Philadelphia cream cheese that I really didn't want to know about. Um, but what they're looking, what the reason, what they're doing is trying to understand they want to, basically, if you take this particular product, they've basically they've, as many people as are going to buy it for sandwiches have now bought it. So what they now want you to do is start cooking with it and so what they're trying to track is virally, is it going viral in terms of our people saying, oh, tonight I'll be making a risotto with X brand. Like, you know, this, is, this is not Chatham House, is it? So I don't know anyway. So, um, you know, so, and so they're looking around to see incidents of that. And of course, you can then see it spreading across networks. So that's one thing we do. The other thing that um, is very common, many of you will have liked Facebook pages of brands that you may <laughs> like uh, if you're a roughly normal set of under 30s. But what um, sometimes people will do is actually create... We will create places where if you love Harley-Davidson's... Imagine you love Harley... You're all too young to love Harley-Davidson. The average uh, age of the of Harley-Davidson purchase now is 55. But anyway, if, imagine you loved harley Davidson, We would create a place where you can go and chat with other Harley-Davidson fans. But then what will happen is we will say, we've created this new mini Harley-Davidson. Do you want to have a look at it? And so rather than doing a survey... We will actually um, find people on there. We'll get them to show them a picture of something briefly that is you know, not yet on the market and get their reactions to it immediately. Uh, and then we go on to things like um, in testing adverts nowadays, what we can do, we can be in Soho with the ad agency, we can create a rough cut of something and then just beam it to you know, 2,000 people's mobile phones. They can say immediately that it comes up on their screen. They've, they've signed up for this, of course. Do you want to look at this ad? They'll look at it and they'll rate it there and then. They can even record, you know, often we, we if you've got an iPhone, we can turn on the video camera for you and you can say what you think. And then it comes back and we look at that live with the, with the team creating it. So it's much more interactive, much more iterative, and much more just very, very fast testing out things. And a lot of companies don't use market researchers. They'll just move the box on an ad or move the page around, move the, you know, change things on the website and just see what happens to purchase behavior in real time. And that's that, that accelerate. you know, you can talk about the age of acceleration, that is definitely a huge shift, you know, stuff that we would have taken a month to do in the past is now being turned around overnight. i follow up on
0: the previous question, yeah. actually, you
1: touched on that already, uh, Facebook, one billion users, yes. have a wealth of information about yes. each individual, Yes. how much... Do you see it as a tool and how much do you see it as a, 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 actually as a competitive it, it is, well, they're Facebook clients, so a Google are a huge client, but it does feel like, you know, the shark has a little fish that goes along with it that cleans the teeth. You know, it cleans the dirt off the teeth, and I'm, I am the little fish. One day, you may get hungry, decide the market research is great. They've already, in fact, Google have already started offering. Um, Uh, I think $75 you can ask a question of the public or something. So they will, you know, that is a a key change. And our industry generally, I mean, we have talked about this for years, at least 20 years. It will be less about our craft skills in collecting the data, because the data now flows through so many different channels, and more about our craft skills in analysing it. But it does mean that the shape of my industry, in the same way as the print media industry, is going to rapidly change.
0: Fascinating. Any, any more questions, follow-ups? One here. <coughs> I'm just going to take the last round because it's nearly 6 o'clock. Sure. Um, anybody else eager to, to ask, a, ask a question, ask it now. One at the back.
1: Okay, we'll take it. especially in the part of the world, where I from, India, has major challenges, which I can tell you all about. as <laughs> the grassroots, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have huge problems yeah you give them things to test they sell them it's partly wow. because we don't pay them enough but yeah no it's um it's a, it's a, well i think all over the the um you know the emerging markets there there are huge issues around um, there are certain things about how different societies value telling the truth not not in terms of the respondents but just in terms of relationships between people and companies Um, No, I mean, to be honest, the way way we deal with it in markets like yours, like India, is basically by assuming very high levels of cheating and then checking for it. I mean, it it adds massively to the transactional cost, but in in places like Brazil and India, we will go and back-check half the interviews. In Nigeria, I mean, the interesting thing, because Africa is actually more developed in mobile phone technology than Britain... But, of course, we can tell that Mr. Blah in Nigeria, has he been to that village to do the interviews? Well, I've got the satellite trace to know that he was there between 5 o'clock and 9 o'clock at these houses. So I, at least I know that he was there. I don't know what he was doing there, but I do know that he did go there at this time. So we, we, we use all of these things as checks, and we have similar things in, you know, in Britain. Um, and, then the, and then the other thing wherever you are if you're in a developed market or here is lots of you could, it's very people are very bad at cheating interviewers actually they tend to they're not very ingenious when they cheat so we usually find out but it's a, it's a big cost
0: <coughs> is that what you yeah. were referring to was there anything else yeah that's what I was referring right. to okay. okay one in the back yeah. um, I know that so carry out obviously I a of the to
1: have asked you to carry that yeah. but
0: Okay, do, you, so do you put the data up there or just the we charts? We we
1: put the data up there as well. You can go and download the, 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 um, the computer tabulations. Basically, the rules that we occupy... So if you decide to commission me to do a survey, I don't know what it would be about. If you, don't, if you pay me to do it, I will do it to professional standards. But if, it, if, it, if it's to remain secret and you don't want anybody to know the answers, then it stays secret. So strangely, Procter & Gamble, yeah. Unilever, a lot of people don't wish to share with their competitors their data. However, if you go to our site, you will find masses of polls, some by advocacy groups, people who want to prove that people don't want to kill foxes or hunt badgers or, or whatever, but also a lot of other data. The, gov- the government, under freedom of information, increasingly just publishes all the data. Um, and there is more data out there than most journalists ever find, because journalists generally are useless. At, I mean, the, the classic thing in Britain used to be that um, if the government wanted to publish something without journalists finding out about it, it would put it into the House of Commons library, which in theory is accessible to them, on Friday night, about 9 o'clock, and they never found it. What they do now is they put it on a website, but about 20 clicks back from the front page, and journalists still don't find it.
0: I think, I'm afraid 20 people have just tweeted your, journalists generally are useless quote. (laughs) Um, But Ben Page, thank you very much for a fantastic uh, talk.